I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For over 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this podcast, we unlock the stories of people's lives through the stories of what they wore. These aren't conversations about fashion. These are conversations about people. Everybody wants to know her name. Stefan Jansen visited Capital to share his collection with our clients and also to share his partner, author, and horticulturalist, Umberto Pasti. There's so much to learn from Stefan. I hope you love his story of designing a gorgeous collection on his own terms and a love story that supports an entire village in Morocco. Stefan Jansen, we're so excited to have you in Charlotte. We, you were here with your partner, Umberto Pasti, and we had a beautiful event at Winghaven last night for you to talk about his beautiful book, Eden Revisited. Um, and now you're here with me for a trunk show, and I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. But, you know, the way the whole thing started, I mean, I was so happy to come here because I've seen you working, and I was very curious to meet your people working with you, your ladies. But... The way things started yesterday, I mean, this kind of Moroccan night <laughs> that was not even, uh, it looked so natural. It was beautiful. And the crowd that was there, I mean, you were at a point you want to meet everyone in Charlotte. <laughs> it's like, because all the people are nice. There is There was a fantastic woman who gave us an iris, which is, happened to be my favorite iris really? in the world. It's called the full boat because it's kind of amber, ginger, red color, mm. but very subdued. And it's just an iris on its own. I could oh. not believe she was giving us this. So, How are you going to get it home? <laughs> can't say it officially. You can't say it officially. <laughs> can you tell me, tell the listeners where you're from? Well, I'm from another wonderland. I was born in the <laughs> south of France and uh, in a lovely, lovely place called Provence. Nothing in my life and family uh, would have brought me to uh, the industry I'm working in, which is fashion. But I have to say that having a lovely childhood in the middle of nature no, has really forged me in a way that I didn't expect. I actually realize more now what it brought me than back then when I was dreaming to be in Paris to be a couturier. What's your first fashion memory? Uh, my first fashion memory, it's very easy because <laughs> I saw I was eight years old. And coming back from school, I saw in the entrance of my grandmother's house the cover of this magazine, which feature a dress, I had no idea what it was, but it's actually it became like an iconic dress, the Mondrian dress by Yves Saint Laurent. So that's January 65. And I thought it was so amazing. And I told my grandmother, you ladies all have to wear this. <laughs> and uh, she explained that um, that would be nice, but neither her or her friends could be couture clients. <laughs> <laughs> you have a very fashionable mother. What's your oh. first fashion memory from her? Oh, the first fashion memory of my mother is, um, well, first of all, it's wigs. Because really? In the, yeah, in the 60s, <laughs> there was this thing with wigs that they could change them like scarves. So I would see my mother once a month. I grew up with my grandparents. And one day she was that lovely brunette with curls. And the months after, she had this incredible ginger bob. And then the months after, she had like long, curly blonde hair. And, 
And I remember at one point we were waiting for my mother to arrive and we were on the porch and when the door of the car opened, even my grandmother had a hard time and she gave me a elbow and said, that's your mother. <laughs> <laughs> we all knew it was my mother, but she was, I mean, you couldn't, and plus in those years, Danielle. fashion was like, um, you know, mini skirts or midi skirts. Or, so everything was very ups and downs. But the first fashion memory I have of her is in the, um, in the Pucci dress because she left the beach and put that dress on. And on her way back to Paris, she just stopped like for a while. Huh? So she was wearing a beach dress. Huh? And I thought it was so cool. It was like little birds flying around. I didn't ask anything. I asked then after my grandmother. Said, I have no idea what it was, but it was nice indeed. <laughs> Another moment before I forced my mother to dress in nothing but Saint Laurent, she was a big Cardin customer and she would never come to fetch me at school. The only time she did, I remember it was such an embarrassment because, I, you know, it's coming out of school and I hear all my chums laughing and laughing and say, what's that? And then I arrive and my mother is wearing this huge black fox hat <laughs> with a red cape by Cardin with holes on the side and the patent leather belt. I mean, she was going to have lunch with a friend who was next door to my school. And I said, Mommy, what are you doing here? So oh, just passing by, so you're not happy. <laughs> Let's move out of here. <laughs> Super embarrassing. Does she still have all of her clothes? Uh, no, because when her figure changed, <clears throat> which is quite recently, only like 15 years ago, yeah. she gave everything away. And the moment she gave everything away, then she said, I could have sold all that stuff. <laughs> so oh, now you gave it, fine. <laughs> well, I also love that you told me the story that she took all of the labels out because they bothered her and she thought they were vulgar. Yeah. <laughs> and now <laughs> no, no. she said, you said you probably couldn't have sold a mother because they had no labels in them. Yeah. And, and also those labels are still in the same box where they've been all accumulated <laughs> over the years <laughs> because she wanted to make pillows. And uh, of course, she never made the pillows, which would have been even worse to have a pillow with all those labels. <laughs> when you moved to Paris with your mother, you were 13. or mm. And that was around the time that you met Saint Laurent. Can you tell me about that? Well, that was quite magic because, I mean, the re reason why I wanted to be a couturier is because I that dress on the cover, mm. the Mondrian dress, made me dream of a world that I didn't even know exist. And um, my mother had remarried with this guy who was in show business and he was very good friends with Zizi Jean-Mer, who, who is a very famous ballet dancer, but who also became like a um, kind of Broadway mm. entertainer in Paris. She was she had a, a show at the Casino de Paris. And of course, I loved her because she was dressed on stage and in life by Yves Saint Laurent. So she was among my idols. So I started going there every Sunday afternoon to see the show because I was at school. So it was <laughs> Sunday afternoon. And after a while, she noticed me in the audience, wanted to know who I was, and we kind of became friends. She had no idea I was 14 <laughs> because I looked older and I dressed older. And one day she tells me, uh, I didn't get it from you. Do you want to be a singer or a dancer? Because those were our two, right. our two understandable professions. And I burst out laughing and said, no, no, I want to be a couturier. And to which she <laughs> answered, oh, great, come on Wednesday night. I'll introduce you to Pierre and Yves. And I freaked out. I thought I would <laughs> never make it, but I did make it. And that's how I met them. And what were they like? Well, the encounter was, I mean, I was shaking 
Mr. Saint Laurent was so shy mm. and he couldn't care less about this little thing. You know? <laughs> Thank God Pierre Berger was there and, and was much more entertaining shy. Pierre never was. So he got into me. When they discovered that I lived the street just behind uh, Rue La Faisanderie, which was behind Rue Spontini where they had the couture house. And your, in your room, your childhood bedroom looked out over to the... Yeah, the well, my childhood bedroom, which was actually the maid's bedroom, but I had insisted <laughs> to have that room because it had a view a back view on the back of the house of Saint Laurent. Amazing. And um, could you see inside? No, could I could see, see I you, could you see just, only the, okay. the roof of the thing. Mm. Well, years later, Pierre told me, I'm glad you couldn't see because I mean, it's very secret what we do up there. <laughs> for me, it was enough to see the roof. Yeah. <laughs> Pierre invited you to a couture show. Yeah, the day I, we met, he said, oh, would you like to see a show? And I said, sure, I would like to see a show. <laughs> and I received this invitation uh, for Wednesday at 11. I will never forget that. And of course, I had to beg permission to go and skip school. Huh? So the Wednesday arrives and I go around the block and there is nothing. I mean, the street is just as empty as every weekday. Huh? I said, well... It's not as I imagined. So I climbed up the few stairs that went to the salon, and this terrible woman looks at me from head to toe, <laughs> and I pull out my card. She looks at it, burst out laughing, and says, oh, honey, it's next week. <laughs> and I could not believe I was so stupid. <laughs> and so I had to come back, and I was hoping that I would have permission to come back, but I did. And that's when the magic happened, because, of course, I saw all the Rothschilds in the world and the Catherine Deneuve and Zizi Jean-Mère who look at me and say, what are you doing here? I say, well, thanks to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. And then uh, the, the top press, like the Diana Vreeland, and, and I was in heaven. Then the show started, and everything, oh God, if I close my head, I can still feel it again. Everything vanished, and I could see just the magic of the clothes, the way it was made. Because back then, the shows, you literally had the girls stepping in front of you. They were not yards away on a yeah. big stage. And and they had, don't even have a number, there was this voice going, numero un, number one. And that <laughs> was it. Yeah, and you had to remember which one. And you had the program, which was very so nice. You could circle the all things. the description, yeah. the, with beautiful descriptions. And I thought it was incredible. And after the show, Pierre Berger saw me. He said, you didn't like it? I said, why do you say that? I said, oh, you have a strange face. I said, no, but Pierre, it's a very difficult job. And he looked at me and said, oh, good. You have got that. Okay, <laughs> that's good. You're on the right track. Yes, it's a difficult job. Yes, it is. And what do you remember about the show? Do you remember what collection it was? Or? Oh, I remember very well. Also because in the program I, that I read before the show started, there were the ombre chiffon dresses with ostriches from uh, South Africa. I said, <laughs> what's that? And those dresses came out with colors of black and white natural. They are not uh, dyed. They are right. natural. Uh, that were like um, a freckle of snow around the face. And it was so beautiful beautiful oh. it was the collection uh, the winter collection 1971 wow and uh, stunning how did you have the wherewithal to 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 go by yourself even at 15 years old to the Saint Laurent show no but it's even beyond that also because that was the crowd that I had dreamt of yeah getting close to and as they accepted me actually I was extremely lucky because I think I arrived in their life at the moment of the construction of the myth of Yves Saint Laurent, mm -hmm. where they had all the elements already, they didn't have to invent them. They had them, but they were just kind of putting them in perspective. Right. I was the young fan, 
And it's something they didn't think of, but that worked because I was well brought up, good manners, I could speak languages, so I could be introduced, be invited to dinners. And, and uh, so I fit in the construction of the meat. It, and so, of course, I thought it was natural, even though I knew it was incredible. But then also my friend, Amy Sullivan, who has been my friend ever since I'm 17, uh, she was of the Andy Warhol crowd. Mm. So, of course, when Andy was coming to Paris, I was hanging around right. with him. For example, to me, it's so funny that Goyard now is a famous brand because the first time I discovered Goyard, it's with Andy Warhol because that's where he would buy the leash for his dog <laughs> and nowhere else. And he took us to this, that place and I said, oh, that's... And I went to my mother and said, do you know Goyard? I said, oh, that's the thing that... Um, the, the competitor of Vuitton. I said, what are you talking about? And say, no, actually, and she got me a Goyard <laughs> luggage for my 18th birthday at this point. But, you know, it, it was normal. I knew that Andy Warhol was super, and Fred Hughes and all that. But strangely, I thought it was normal also because it was my kind of... At school, I would never speak about those things. Sure. But it was like my other life, and then I would go to school. I was, I was very, very good at school. I was always the first of the class. So my family was like, okay, fine, you can do your other stuff, as long as you're the first of the class. It just went on like that, and all those meetings were so natural. Yeah. When I moved out of the scene, I realized, I said, oh my God, you were nuts. <laughs> I remember the first time they invited me to come down to Marrakesh, I must have been like 16. <laughs> and that's when I said, so I have to ask permission, and Pierre said, permission of what? I said, well, to my mother. I said, but how old are you? And I said, oh, I'm 16. I said, what? <laughs> He knew I was young, but he thought I was at least 18. You know, I'm 16. He said, but do you mean when I met you, you were 14? Said, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I also think it has a little to do with grandparents. You were raised by your grandparents. And I think that people that had strong relationships with their grandparents are, are very sure of themselves, it seems, in my life. You got it completely. I mean, yeah. my, my grandfather sadly died when I was really young. I was nine but my grandmother with whom i said till the age of 13 i was her god yeah and also because i was born the day of the crazy people in the south of france so that made <laughs> the my... 28th of march exactly <laughs> and that made my childhood wonderful because whatever i did it could have been worse so <laughs> everything went fine and i grew up with so much love and so much security i, I have no doubts yeah and even the, all our family history that my grandmother was from a very wealthy family on that, and she had married this guy who had no money, but she was madly in love with it, and then who made his fortune. Yeah. And that. So money was taboo. Yeah. I mean, I never heard of money till I moved to Paris. Mm. I, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. So all these elements made it that my life was just like a, a magic flying carpet, and uh, <laughs> say, I want to meet Yves Saint Laurent, and dong, it was Yves Saint Laurent, and oh, it's Andy Warhol, dong, it's Andy Warhol. And then, same thing with, because of my stepfather's job in show business, uh, I knew all the singers, yeah. and uh, so they were no longer TV people, they were like people who would come to the house, and you know, so it was crazy, but that's how it was. What's the most important lesson you learned from Mr. Saint Laurent and Mr. Berger? Well, it's you're absolutely right. It's two very different things. Huh. Um, from Mr. Saint Laurent, actually, I remember once I was after the show, there was a party at home, and I, back then I must have been like 16. And uh, Mr. Saint Laurent was already getting tired of me because I was too in admiration of him, and he didn't <laughs> like that. And um, I told him about the collection. He turned to me 
And he'd look at me very icily cold and say, my only real talent is timing with that rhythm. And I thought he, would have, he had dismissed me with this. And I went and again, Pierre Berger said, what happened? He said, oh, Pierre, he just told me something really terrible. Said, what did he say? He said, this thing about timing? He said, honey, that's to prove he really likes you because that's what he thinks. He said, I'm so lucky to have this pulse of timing. Yeah which is something I never had. So <laughs> that I, I didn't learn. But what I learned, what I learned from Saint Laurent is to be accomplice. Accomplice. Accomplice for women. Uh, yes, a, a, a friend. I mean, a, more than a friend. It's like, uh, like a, a I'm, partner I'm in crime. Uh, siding with you. Yes. Partner in crime. Yes. Yeah. He and did do that. And you absolutely do that. That's interesting. That's, I know that's what he got me. Of course, the sense of colors that, uh, you know, having worked both at Kenzo and, and being befriended Saint Laurent, color is a natural thing to me. And actually, when I started my own line, everything was black and solid. So my only reason to exist was to be prints and colors. And of course, the buyers at the beginning said, who wears that? <laughs> know, hopefully someone. <laughs> so of course, now that fashion is very much like prints and colors, I feel gray, black, navy, and, and, and brown. <laughs> and, uh, but my team tells me, you know, the first thing they ask is, what are the new colors? So we can't answer blue, black, gray. <laughs> <laughs> you went to school in France and studied fashion. Yes. And from there went to work with Kenzo, yes. who was a genius. A total genius. People don't realize it now, but yeah. uh, I mean, the whole industry has to be so thankful to him because he opened so many doors. And um, also the joy that came with Kenzo. And yeah. also something very important. It corresponded to a change of society, but also that clothes that people could afford yeah. with that change. Because I remember back then you had the likes of Thierry Mugler starting, Claude yeah. Montana starting. Their clothes appealed to a young hip crowd, right. but that could not even buy a belt from them. Right. So it ended up on the wrong person. On that. <laughs> Versus Kenzo had that power that he was ageless you had from i mean cool kids from the street wearing kenzo till the young baroness of rothschild who was a big yeah. fan actu actresses on that everyone men and women uh. and a lot of clothes were also already gender crossing i mean it was mm, not interesting and uh, and it corresponded i remember the first time i was invited at kenzo dinner party at home I was looking around, there was no table, so where's going to be the dinner? And the dinner was served and they all sat on the floor. <laughs> and for a little bourgeois like I was, I said, okay, I'll eat on the floor. But it was Welcome like, wow. <laughs> and it was just because he's Japanese, so it was normal to, yeah. to sit on those big cushions and have dinner there. Going on in my life, living a lot in Morocco, I'm used to sit <laughs> on the floor now. And what do you think you learned from Kenzo? Well, Kenzo actually... The first time I went there, I was helping during the night. I was still going at school and I was 16. And I would come home, do my homework, rush to um, Rue Saint-Anne where the atelier were, work all night, then go back home, pretend I had been sleeping, go to school and then <laughs> for months. And I remember the first fitting when the clothes arrived and Kenzo wanted to see them. And instead of putting them on the model, he was putting the, the clothes on himself. So to me, to see ah. a man putting on women's clothes was like so bizarre. How but all he man. wanted, he wanted the feeling of the dress. He huh. didn't want to look at himself dressed in a dress. Yeah. He just wanted to get the feeling. And as soon as he got that, he was looking in the mirror, the way, then took it off and then next. One. And to me, that was an incredible thing. Yeah. And uh, I had no judgment, but I, 
I understood what he wanted. Huh. And actually the season after, I remember, we were all assistants and it was um, a winter collection where there were so much needs, like sweaters and scarves and uh, hosiery and socks and gloves and hats. Uh, and Kenzo would put a dress and we had to bring the accessories. And the other assistants would bring the trays with all the colors of the hosiery. And, uh, and I was like a free help. I was not even on the payroll or anything. Mm -hmm. But when my turn came and I saw the dress he had picked, I made a selection of three hosiery, three gloves, you know, and presenting the thing. And they all told me, that's not the way to do it. Uh. But I was there already. And then Kenzo would didn't look at this point, look at the trail, looked up and said, merci. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I was there to help, not to make his life more complicated. Yeah. And so I guess what I learned from Kenzo, it's an immediate immediacy of... Um, answers to mixing colors things like that, because uh. I thought the other assistants were making a mess right. but you know I was a kid and but I just didn't want to be part of the mess so I made a selection luckily he thanked yeah. me for that <laughs> and it went on our relationship went on like that which was wonderful mm. and um, he told me about you know just use your eyes don't get confused by influence of other things and it's your eyes that count and then if they like it good if they don't well too bad for them and then from there, Dianne von Furstenberg. Dianne von Furstenberg was quite an unplanned move. <laughs> an of exciting life. move. Yes. <laughs> because we met, uh, I was staying at friends in Venice, and it's the first time I was in Venice. I was 18. And uh, she came for lunch. So we, the kids, were kicked out of the house. They go and visit the museums. We're having the Princess Furstenberg for lunch. Okay, great. We came back like around 5 36 in the afternoon. She was still there. And we had tea together and we started having so much fun together. And actually, she had much more fun with us, the kids, sure. than <laughs> with the grown-ups. And she was there for three more days with her daughter, Tatiana. And we saw each other every day after that and spent all that time having a great time. To which, at the end, she said, give me your telephone number. There was no cell phones back then. Okay, I give the telephone number. And she called me the day after, as soon as I came back to Paris. And say, why don't you come and work with me? I say, this woman is completely cuckoo. <laughs> <laughs> Three days of great time in Venice. I mean, you don't ask someone to go to work with you. But she has this very strong feminine instinct. She knew she wanted me. Yeah. And after the second or third time she comes, I say, yes, why not? And so, so you moved to New York. Well, I went to New York to, to see them. And I, I remember I arrived on a Friday. It was your first time in New York. No, no, I, I, had I had been going for a few okay. years already. I started going to New York since I was 15. And um, um, on a Friday, so well, the first thing, assignment, you have to do a knitwear line. It's about 20 pieces. And I say, okay, great. And so that was Friday. And Monday morning, I arrived at the office with 50 drawings. So I think those are the 25 interesting, but the development on those 25. And, and she said, when did you do that? So, over the weekend, great, you have a job. <laughs> I thought she was even more cuckoo than I thought, but actually she wasn't. And it was great for me to discover something that most male designers would never come close to. It's what it means to be a woman when you decide to maybe try on that dress and these things. So, I mean, a woman's reaction to clothes. I mean, men don't have that. I mean, most yeah. of the men don't have that. Some mm. do. And uh, I'm very thankful to her because she got me onto a path that I would probably not have discovered for a long time. 
And you worked with her for six years. Actually, it's funny because years before I had met at a party one of those crazy women that predict the future. Uh-huh. And she told me I would meet that dark-haired woman in a city of water and she would take me across the sea, no, the ocean for three years, no, at least six, well, actually seven years. And I thought this woman was crap. And then I met Diane in Venice. She took me to New York. I worked there for three years. Then I quit. And then I worked for three more years. So at the end, it's seven I years. It. Things It happened. I've never worked so much in my life, which I love, but I worked endlessly and loving every moment of it because uh. i didn't know in in france we had two seasons in america there were four seasons yeah. every season we had to have 20 new prints for the wrap dress and of course we had we needed new wrap dresses too yeah it was a roller coaster and uh it was amazing at that period you met umberto i think yes and and quit fashion yes for a because moment. no no i i said well that's I had been twice in love in my life when I was 25 and I thought it was already a lot. (laughs) So I never thought I would fall in love a third time, which I did. And I thought it was really risky. But I said, why not? Let's go. And so for a year, we just traveled the world because he was a big traveler and I uh, had been only a a working traveler. So we traveled for pleasure. When the year was over, I had told Diane that I was taking a year off and I I had to... um, I would say quit the job, to quit because I wanted to breathe and leave. But no one was calling me somewhere else. So exactly a year after I I quit, she called me, said, you have a job? I said, no, actually, I'm starting next week to look for a job. Don't look. I have a job for you. Oh, what is it? Diane von Festenberg Couture. I thought it was the strangest idea ever. But she was right. We had a wonderful time doing that. It's because our business was not doing well. And she knew that by having something as extravagant as the DVF Couture would put the limelight on her. And she did a fantastic job. And your first four clients were? That was it. The first two clients were obvious. They were Diane's friend. One's Bianca Jagger. The other one was Marisa Berenson, both divine and very easy to dress. And when I was called and said the third client was CZ Guest, and I remember exactly what she shows, I could not believe it. I said, wow. I mean, okay, Bianca and Marisa, kind of obvious. obvious yeah. But a woman like CZ Guest ordering a DVF couture dress, that's unheard of. The fourth client was Arita Franklin. And I said, now, okay, that's the jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long did you do that? Uh, it went on for... Two years and a half. Okay. And uh, actually what happened, we were on the first season, we made all the clothes on Fifth Avenue, 745 Fifth Avenue, which is across yeah. from uh, Bird of Goodman. So every dress literally had a cost that, I mean, you couldn't make money on that because right. made on Fifth Avenue, it was <laughs> really crazy. And as I lived in Italy, I proposed to Diana, I said, why don't we have the workrooms in Italy? where the workmanship is of high quality and all that, and it's, it's going to cost a, a quarter of what that, all that. So we, she opened a little company. She gave me shares of that company. And when she decided to end up the very costly couture business, she said, well, actually, the company has made money in Italy. That's my farewell present, so you can start your own line. I said, I don't want to start my own line. I said, but you have to. So she's the one who put in business, That's amazing. Actually. And yes. so you had your workroom already. Happen- yeah. That's incredible. And also I had uh, I had all this financial security because it was a very profitable yeah. company. And But I had not intended. I like so much to be behind the, yeah. 
the screen. I don't really like to appear. That's why I love to talk on a microphone and not being <laughs> filmed or photographed. But um, but did you know when you started your own collection, did you know that you had a client in Italy? No. Actually, I also knew that uh, the influence Yves Saint Laurent had on me was way too strong. Yeah. So I had kind of to clean myself. So for two years, I did only made-to-measure special order things. Okay. Because I, I, I just I call it cleaning myself. I, yeah. I had to find my way. Luckily, Umberto, my partner, was born in Milan. He knew every single woman in Milan, and he did something wonderful. He just picked up the phone one day and said the same sentence to every woman. We, were, of course, the next day they all knew he said the same sentence. Said, Darling, I'm so happy to talk to you. I have such good news for you. Stefan is starting an atelier. You have to go there. Then the address is this and put down. <laughs> Darling, I have such good news for you. And in, in a month's time, I had all the best clients in Milan. Yeah. What uh, Deborah told you, it's also, for example, Wendy Goodman brought me my first account in America, which was Barney's, uh -huh. because she went to a party in Milan. And the three women she noticed were wearing my clothes. Yeah. And when they say, who does that? And say, Stefan Jansson. She pretends she heard of it. <laughs> and the third one said, well, I have to get that clear. Then she went to another party and the same thing happened. And said, where do I find it? So here she comes. Said, I'm doing a story for New York Magazine. Can I photograph something? Sure. And I'm so excited. And plus, Wendy Goodman had been the first editor to photograph one of my couture things for Diane without huh. knowing anything. Huh. So... To me, she was very important. She photographed that. Then she called me and said, great, give me the credits for the shops in America. I said, I have no shops in America. I said, oh, do you mind if I find a shop for you? I said, please do. And then she called me the next day and said, okay, Barney's want the line. They accept the credit. And they became my first account. And uh, again, it happened because, I mean, those women were noticed, especially in a world where everyone knows what you're wearing. All of a sudden, to have these things... Uh, and they look good. I mean, that's what I was telling your staff before. You know, I want my clients to be noticed for themselves, not for the dress. Yeah. Of course, the dress helps. It's it's an element of the seduction. But what I like is when they tell me, "Oh, I saw so and so yesterday. She looked stunning." Yeah. They don't tell me, "Oh, she, oh, had, she had a great dress. dress." Yeah. I don't want to know that. You know. No, I agree with mm. that. To listeners, so much of your life sounds like a fairy tale, but I know that you've had challenging times too. Can you talk about the greatest challenge you had in your life? Actually, when I was a kid and Saint Laurent, I saw him suffering so much yeah. on the eve of the collections. And I was wondering why, because I knew he would deliver something stunning and all that. Mm. But when it came my turn, when I was involved in the fashion shows and all that, the pain that comes with it is so... Because if you're an honest guy and you put... It's like revealing yourself every six months. Mm. And if it's well received, of course, you're such a narcissist. You say, great, of course, they understood it. If it's not well received, it's really painful. So yeah. it goes with that. I had experience like when I was um, asked to relaunch the Emilio Pucci label. For me, as I told you, my first memory of my mother in something mm. fashionable was in the Pucci dress. So I knew exactly what it is to live in a Pucci way. And when Laudomia Pucci first met me, uh, I was not at all on the list of her desired designers, but the person who was in charge of finding the designer, when she met me, she said, you're the one, I mean, there is no doubt you're the one. And I was very happy because I, I knew I could do a great job. And I told Laudomia, I said, I would prefer not to appear. Mm. And she said, oh, that's nonsense. We have a market research, she said, it has to be a designer. To which I answered, yes. Okay, get Karl Lagerfeld to do Pucci. <laughs> 
That's fashion news. You get Stefan Johnson, it's only quality news and no one cares about quality. Let's show them that it's alive and so on. And then if they ask who's doing it, we'll say, and Laudomio look at me and say, well, if you don't want the job, just tell me. I say, no, I want the job. When we had, we had two, of, two seasons in Florence that were very quiet, but we were fantastic. The thing started growing very quickly. So we decided to have a show in, in Milan instead of Florence. And it was such a success that Laudomia suffered a lot because it was like she did not exist. It was all about me. And I hated it. Yeah. And I hated even more that she was suffering. That, and I said, Laudomia, I told you I didn't want to appear. But uh, that's the way it is. I, I was the designer. But that, for example, killed my, uh, in a way, my career because because of the way fashion is, there was a, a stylist from Italian Vogue that was really very ordinary to my taste. <laughs> and when she arrived with the accessories that she had prepared without telling me anything beforehand, and first of all, the shoes were a knockoff of Prada, just that they were made in in Pucci fabrics. And I told her, listen, yeah. I've never knocked off anything in my life. I'm certainly not going to start mm. under someone else's label. So the shoes are out. And then she wanted to put blue scotch tape on the head of the model. I say, oh, <laughs> my lady, that's the hot new thing. You know? So I had her fired, which made it that I was an enemy for the Italian condenas, which back then was like yeah. kiss of death. I mean, you did not exist. So it's a miracle I'm still around because I really had everything against me. But and did I, you know at the time that it was that it was a dangerous time? Or oh, maybe? of course I knew. Yeah. But there was no way I was going to show fake Prada shoes on a runway, <laughs> especially under a label that I had to honor. Yeah. And uh, a label that never copied anything. I mean, Pucci yes. has never copied no. anything. So the idea to have those really silly shoes just because they were printed, because she told me, but the print is different. I was about <laughs> to kill this woman. And uh, so I had... I had her fired, so it was war, but I couldn't care less because I know what I'm about. And if I don't fit in the system, well, too bad for the system. Yes, mm. and lucky for us. <laughs> Thank you, that's very <laughs> kind of you. What, what do you think has been your biggest success? I wish I knew, I, I never think in those terms. For me, your mm. biggest success is that you you connect to each and every one of your clients. I mean, you you, mm. you really are, as you say, an accomplice. I, I have to say, narcissically, I love the awareness I have that I'm part of my client's life. Yes. I mean, I have many women that seduce their husband with my dress and that some of them save their marriage with my dress. <laughs> and uh, to be such an intimate part of a woman's, it's for a guy who's doing my job, I think it's wonderful. Of course, there are many designers who prefer to have yachts and residences in all the capitals of the world and that. But I already have three houses to run, and that's already <laughs> difficult enough. So, uh, and I don't want a yacht, and I'm fine in business class. I don't need first class, <laughs> and just because I have long legs, if not, I would travel economy. You know, my grandfather, who was a self-made man, his employees wanted to travel business. He always traveled economy because when they insist, they say. What time does it arrive, the, um, the business class thing? At the same time, well, so it's fine. We're all in economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had made this money and uh, he really worked every penny. And thanks to him and his legacy, I'm not, uh, I don't need to show. Now I'm staying here in Charlotte in the most beautiful residence. <laughs> and I'm mention. like, wow. <laughs> and I'm lucky enough to have stayed in other beautiful places like that, but I still take it as a present from life. I think your life with Umberto, I think life got a lot more beautiful when you met him. 
Tell me about the adventures that you've had in your life with. Oh them. God, that we did an entire we show for that. Sure. No, no. That's a whole but, show. But but it's true that I mean, falling in love with an extremely intelligent man uh, is something that I wish to everyone because mm. it, you have ups and downs, but the ups are so up that you forget the downs and. Um, <laughs> Also the vision, and of course now it's been 38 years that we've lived together and uh, we're on the verge of incest because I mean we know <laughs> each other so much and we don't even have to speak anymore like in a crowd. We can look at each other and it's like the phrase come out and it's not just a signal, it's like a complete development of a conversation that goes and uh, we meet at the check, uh, check and you know, and, and it's wonderful. and. Uh, what he's doing now with the, um, I say he's doing because he pretends we are doing it together, but I'm just supporting. It's so wonderful because we are so privileged and the idea that we can help an entire community just being the way we are, not pretending to be anything else. And to have, you know, in Europe we have this big problem, you have it here too, of immigration. And of course when those poor people come for a better life, usually they have a very, very bad life here too. But so now what we're trying to do is just to create jobs for these people in their land where they are. It's not easy, but you don't have to always to go for the easy choices. And uh, it's wonderful to be part of this on top of our relationship, which is intellectually fantastic. But on this, it's being two men, we don't have kids, of course, but now we have like 400 kids in the village. Exactly. So <laughs> I would love for you to talk a little bit about Rahuna, your garden in Morocco, where you and Umberto live part of the year. So the listeners who don't know are about zillions of people because we <laughs> keep talking about Rouna like it's a, it's a front page news, but it's actually a tiny little village uh, in Morocco, northern Morocco, 60 kilometers south of Tangier, which is like the top city on the top of the African continent. And uh, you're quite right to say, you know, for us, Rouna is so important that it's the center of the world, but it's really like a village that till 10 years ago was completely isolated. All what we've built there was brought by hand, donkeys, mules, because there was literally no road. At one point, the equivalent of the National Trust in Italy, the FAI, came to visit the garden and they are very wealthy people. And at the end of the garden, they said, what do you need for your garden? And they said, well, my garden doesn't need anything at this point, but the village needs an access. And if you could you know, raise some money to make a little bridge, but very the cheapest bridge ever, yeah. just so we could pass the river and have a, a road. In 15 minutes, they pulled out something like $50,000, which was exactly, no one made, a, because it was unexpected, no one made a price. Yeah. It's exactly what it costed to have all these things done. Huh. And uh, so that's when Umbert said, well, you know, I never thought of it, but maybe we can really help these people. That's how it started. Yeah most of the village works with you or has at one point well when we built yes not only the village but the next village and the next village <laughs> i called it the cleopatra syndrome because it was those endless lines especially on the payday and they were uh, umberto was under a tree with a big bag full of money and uh, and the guy and say how, how many days like much so he gave the money i should have filmed that but i'm not very good with technology and that endless line was like you know who are these people and say well he's done the roof he's done this he's done this and, uh, uh. and now, yes, we have a 
six gardeners that are from the village, but yeah. mostly we got the little girls to make dolls in the Berber tradition. And now that's a big income revenue because we had shows in Milan, Madrid, London, Paris, yeah. Tangier, and going that. And then we have kids making furniture, we have kids making straw sculptures, mm. and we try our best to have them something to stay there substance you know yeah. to stay in there because the place where they live is so beautiful but they had no idea because they didn't know anything else right. that's where they were born yeah now because of all the people coming from all over the world to visit the garden they realize that it's worth the trip <laughs> and when you got there it was just a bunch of rocks i mean it was not rocks. a garden yeah thank god i took pictures back then of what because <laughs> now when you see it it's so obvious that it's a divine garden and it's birds singing and animals going around you know? but there were rocks and actually all the houses that all oh, it's three houses on the property they are all made in stone and so where do you find those stones well they were here <laughs> just made pies of them and then we turned them into houses <laughs> what do you love most about rahuna the sense of space and the, the no limit and uh you know, when I wake up very early in the morning and I look at the ocean, I always think, because New York is at the big part in my life, so I always think, well, my life, second act of my life starts over there, and the last act of my life is on this side. I know it's a strange thing with the ocean. But I think the most magical part of your life is with Umberto and, and Rahuna. It's just begun. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm glad you feel this way because um, that's reality. Sometimes when I'm alone in Milan and uh, I usually work like 12 hours a day and by the end of the day I walk back home and I go through the park of Milan and my mind goes completely to ruin. It's so strange because mm. I just like, it's kind of a meditation. Yeah. I walk in the park and uh, and I know at, at this hour what's happening on that and I'm there and I feel wonderful. I know you're going to say no, but on every, <laughs> on every podcast we ask okay, I'll sing what for you. people wore to the prom, but I mm. don't believe you had a prom in Paris, but I think your prom was that first couture show of Saint Laurent. What did you wear to that? Oh, I know exactly what I wore <laughs> to that. I Actually, know. I know what you wore too, and I think it is sort of prom-like. So tell, tell, tell <laughs> Oh no, listeners. it's super prom. I had this double-breasted uh, velvet blazer with a bow tie, a silk bow tie. I mean, all clad in Saint Laurent from at, even the shoes that were one size smaller than my size, but I had to have them. <laughs> and, uh, if I saw myself today, I would probably have such a look of tenderness on that little queeny thing going down. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Well, me. thanks to you, Laura. It's a wonderful experience. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.